Hello everyone, Dr. Anna Kabeca here on Couch Talk today to talk with Dr. Srini Pillay about how we focus the unfocused mind and actually about his amazing work. First, let me tell you about Dr. Srini. He is, has been one of my mentors and I have known him for several years now. We've done, many of you listeners may have heard our podcast we did on PTSD a little while back and we'll relink that below, but he is just a wealth of information and really uncovering the unconscious, so to speak. But a little more background about Srini's professional side. He is at Harvard Medical. He has been a Harvard medicine trained psychiatrist and works there and has just tons of accolades from all over the place really his website is dr dr srini s-r-i-n-i pillay p-i-l-l-a-y dot com so i want you to look him up and and learn about him and learn about what he's putting forth in the world it's really amazing he has helped me in so many ways and i'll touch on that a little bit further on in our interview, but really he is literally the um, um, go-to person, not only for leading corporations, right, but also for soccer moms, stay-at-home moms, working moms, and, and everywhere they're in between. And his emphasis has really been that uncover, like I said, uncovering the unconscious. So without further ado, Srini, welcome to Couch Talk once again. Anna, thank you so much for having me. And I just have to say, you've also really inspired me in so many ways. So thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, likewise. Well, let's get right into it and start talking about this aspect of what we are focusing on currently in psychiatry versus what you have found in the neuroscience aspects and the, can we say neuropsychiatric aspects? Sure. I mean, you could use whatever words you want. I think I, think I get it. I think, you know, I, I think that, that in general, uh, when we've been talking about human behavior and how to make changes in our lives, we've been, we've been really relying on ideas. And so my background in brain science, I worked in a brain science laboratory for 17 years while I also did my clinical work, which I still do. And so being able to have that research background at the same time that I'm seeing real human beings who don't always correlate with the research, um, gave me a sense of how we could apply this research to help people learn how to access their brains. And the huge exciting fact here is that the brain can change. And this is called neuroplasticity. And what I've learned over the years are specific ways in which you can tap into your own brain in order to change it. So I think conventionally psychiatry has relied on sort of explorations, reflections, debriefings, talking about stuff. And what the neuroscience does is it adds another layer of complexity I think all of that other stuff is great, but it adds another layer of complexity and says, you know what, if you were going to change your behavior, so let's say you're feeling anxious today, how would you redirect blood in your brain so that it's not all caught up in the anxiety center? If you're feeling like you're hitting a wall and you're fatigued and you can't, you know, you can't get stuff done, usually people will say things like, well, why don't you relax or why don't you take a break, which is perfectly legitimate. But at the same time, we know that there are certain brains, there are certain circuits in the brain that will actually recharge your brain if you know how to access them. So my next book is really about that. It's about figuring out how to act, to make the most of your own brain. I think one of my pet peeves in this field has been that, you know, in the whole self-help world, 
a lot of people are, this is the way you do this. And these, these are the three things you do. And this is how you get to your goals. And everyone who comes to me is also sort of obsessed with the notion of how. Like, I want to get to my goal. And there's nothing wrong with knowing your goal and knowing how to get there. But the I part, everybody forgets. And it's probably the most important part of that entire sentence. Because who wants to get to the goal? The burnt out person who's not feeling good about life? The person who's not really present in their own lives because they don't have the permission to be there? The person who's motivated because they've got to make a couple of bucks, but their heart and soul is not in it. There's no way you can make it to your goal. You have to drag yourself to the finish line. And so I think these things sound easier than they actually are to live life with purpose, to live life fully as yourself. And I wanted to write a book that could really help people try to understand how to access this mental activity and how to access the unconscious. Well, you talked about that. You said a good part of our focus over the, you know, millennia in medicine anyway, has been on 2% of our brain, right? The conscious aspect of our brain and 98% of is unconscious. And so tapping into that aspect. Well, let's start off to give us a practical, like I'm going to say, give us the top three things you can do right now to unlock the keys to our master brain centers. But actually, what, what is one thing that you found works and in the variety of clients you have and again, like you said, we are all different. So, um, but that will access, I mean, so intriguing to me to unlock those aspects, to unlock the I part that just loves and thrives and is so driven to get to that goal. Yeah, I think, so a couple of different things, right? When we think about identity, like if I say, who are you? One of the things is you start to think about, well, you know, my name is Anna and this is the work I do and this is where I live and these are the people I love. These are all the macro parts of our, of our identities. And, and metaphorically, they are the parts of the dish that you can pick up with a fork because if they're solid, they're there, you know what they are. But in addition to all these solid pieces of your identity, there's also this delicious melange of flavors that exist about you that are hard to define. They're intangible. You know, a focused mind can never really get at them. It would be, it would be like trying to eat the liquids in a dish with a fork. You need a spoon. And in the brain, the unfocused circuit is the spoon that allows you to pick up this delicious melange of flavors. So let's get straight to it. In terms of one, this book is just full of techniques, but one of the things is positive, constructive daydreaming, believe it or not. So, you know, when we think of daydreaming, we usually think about slipping into a daydream or just this guilty dysphoric daydreaming where we're just, you know, we, we maybe like maybe we had a little bit too much to drink the night before, a little bit too gregarious and you get up the next day and you can't stop thinking about it or you're at a place where you're thinking to yourself you know man i just i was, I was working on this thing i was trying to get it done but all of a sudden my mind drifted off and i didn't really know how to get there and so these two types of daydreaming do not work jerome singer was one of the first researchers in around the 1950s 1955 who studied these different types of daydreaming and said Slipping into a daydream and guilty, and guilty daydreaming are not helpful. But positive, constructive daydreaming, called PCD, is actually something that does a bunch of different things that are really exciting. And it increases your creativity. It actually allows you to do what we call attention cycling. And so it recharges your brain. So what is this and, and, and why, does it, why does it impact your brain? Well, to do positive, constructive daydreaming, the, the basic difference between that 
and any other type of daydreaming is that you plan it. Now, it sounds counterintuitive. It's like, why would I plan 15 months daydreaming. of daydreaming? Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like planning to jump off a cliff with a parachute versus slipping off the cliff. You know, it's like, they're not the same thing. They may sound like the same thing. You know, in one case, you're just suddenly slipping off the cliff and you're in danger. In the other, you're having a fun time, but you have a parachute and you're planning. So in the same way, if you plan your daydreaming, and then you, you know, we spend most of our days staring at computers, staring at people. Our perception is externally directed. What this is about is to say, hey, give the external attention a break. Let's take our attention. And you know, everyone's looking for answers outside of themselves. But instead of looking for these answers outside of yourself, how about you take this attention, which is like a flashlight, and turn it inward and start looking inwards. And the idea here is the studies have shown that this works particularly well if you are doing a low demanding activity like knitting or gardening, maybe surfing the net, when you go inside. The idea is not just to daydream on externally, but to take your attention and take it inwards into your own head. And what's amazing about it is that most people don't realize a lot of the things, the juice about their identities actually lies in this daydreaming journey. So by first planning it, then having this kind of, sort of excited desire to turn your perception inward and then be involved in a low demanding activity, you begin to actually activate the unfocused networks in the brain, the spoon, which is called the default mode network. Or if you can't remember that, it's the DMN, which is also the do mostly nothing network. So, <laughs> so most people used to think this network's doing nothing. Like, you know, what's it actually doing? But if you actually look at the brain, in its baseline state. The brain occupies 2% of the body's volume, but it uses 20% of the body's energy. So, you know, it's a, it's a busy body and mm -hmm. it's, it's doing stuff all the time. And this is at rest. If you apply effort, it just uses 5% more. So there's stuff going on. It may look like a do mostly nothing circuit, but this is really churning away, taking old memories, repackaging them, sending them to the fore, trying to store memories, basically doing basic house cleanings in the brain to try to mop up stuff and make sure that things are clear enough. Mm. Now, we don't take care of this house cleaning service in our brains. We usually just, you know, whatever happens, happens. We focus, 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 and neglect the service. But when you actually activate the default mode network, metaphorically, it starts to glow like an octopus. And its tentacles, which are really the neurons, go and reach into places in your memory bank that focused attention could never reach. You know, it's like you're sitting at a restaurant and you hear, you're inside your head, you're lost in the thought and you hear the sound that reminds you of this feeling you had on a date, on a particular day when something felt awesome but you don't really have the words for it. This stuff is very important. So much of our lives are filled with this undefinable stuff but we remove it from the equation in our day-to-day -day lives. And so positive constructive daydreaming will activate this do mostly nothing network. It will go in the memory banks, pull out puzzle pieces that have been lost to your general everyday living, and then help you reconstitute this puzzle to be able to predict and have a different future. And so we know that this is the mechanism. We also know that what this mechanism does is it improves attention. It, it improves attention because you get this attention cycling. You're not on overdrive the whole day, you know? And, and I think a lot of people are sort of freaked out by this. I actually gave a talk on this in London recently, and someone said to me, 
look, I totally get that switching off is a place for creativity. Like I get my best ideas in the shower. I get my best ideas when I take the dog for a walk. I get that. But I feel really guilty when I daydream. Like, why is that? And I said, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But the one thing that comes to mind, the thing that's at, at the top of my mind, is, is the whole Kierkegaard idea that, that humans have a very ambivalent relationship with freedom. We say we want it, yet there is this dizziness of freedom, and we suddenly look for balls and chains so we can be connected to gravity. So if you ask most people, would you like to be floating in space, or would you want to be connected to gravity? People are like, oh, I want to be grounded. Well, it's okay to be grounded if you need to be stable and doing what you're doing. But it's not okay to be grounded if you're, if you're shipwrecked. Or it's not okay to be grounded if you're locked in a room. They're, these are the kinds of distinctions we need to make. So I think if there is an initial resistance to building this time in your day, recognize that you're doing it in the service of your own brain because you want to activate this, this unfocused circuit to yeah. bring more of you to the table. Yeah, and I could see that. Also, don't you think that guilty aspect may have been learned guilt from daydreaming as a child and being told, right. what are you doing? You're not doing anything. Get to work or do something. And so we now have this learned guilt from a natural phenomenon. So that's interesting um, yeah. to and kind of ponder. Well, when you, when you talk about that guilt in childhood, it also reminds me about doodling. You know, like how when you're in front of a class and someone's, like talking to you and you're doodling and someone says, you know, put that down. Well, studies are now showing that if you doodle, you have statistically significantly better memory when someone is talking than if you don't doodle. And hence the, like the re-popularity um, of coloring books, adult coloring books and, right. and this type of creative outlet for adults because we've been stifled in, in so many ways where creativity can be so beneficial. But that brings us to the title of your book. So let's talk about your book title and your book in general and what people can find in it. It's Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Only you would come up with a title like this. So, <laughs> what? okay, we got the doodle part. <laughs> yeah, and the, the tinkering part is really, uh, the dabbling part is also interesting. You know, one of the examples that I, I mentioned in the book is, is the example of, of Toponkare was a mathematician who was very, very sort of greatly admired. And he had, and he and Einstein and Picasso both lived at the same time. And they had think tanks where they would contemplate the work of Poincare. But Poincare was an extreme rationalist. He developed his theory until the last two steps where he said, there's no rational evidence to go beyond this. I'm stopping this theory here. Einstein, however, decided to imagine a perfect outcome. And then he reverse engineered this and discovered the theory of relativity by dabbling in Poincare's work. Picasso at the same time was listening to Poincare's work and became inspired about the fourth dimension. And this led to an entire movement in, in Cubist art. He, he painted La Demoiselle uh, d'Avignon, which is sort of one of his most fam famous paintings that, was, that involved a, a woman in these two dimensions, four dimensions is what he wanted to represent. And you can see here, these are not people who knew Poincare's work that deeply. They were dabbling in it, and it actually gave rise to some immediate associations that they were able to integrate into their own work. So there is value in, in tinkering around with stuff until something gets unearthed. There's value in doodling 
in mind wandering and there's value in dabbling and really in trying because just in the effort of trying you discover a bunch of things and i think in this world we've become so trapped in this perfectionism and we feel like we've got to do everything perfectly and if we don't try and if we don't do it perfectly we should not try i think what i would want to say to everyone is if it is true and i think it is and i'd love you to take a look at this book um that that tinkering, dabbling, doodling, and trying will activate a different part of your brain. Why not get to know what some of these ways are so that you can begin to be a fuller version of yourself um, in your life? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm so excited that you've done this work and that you have it available for us. And I just know now our listeners will hear your voice as they read it, which is just makes it even that much more fascinating. I mean, seriously. So um, one thing that I wanted to bring up before we close today and that is, is the whole thing about attention deficit and how these practices can enhance our attention. And because kids right now believe that they're, I mean, you know, I'll tell you a story. I went to my daughter's lunch at school. She was in, this was last year when she was in second grade and I brought her lunch, you know, some um, dried seaweed and some sushi for lunch. And the kids at her table wanted to know what that was. And we had this great conversation and they tried the different things. And and then um, several of them said, oh, we have to go to the school nurse. I mean, like out of a table of 12, six had to go take medication. And I said, well, why are you taking this medication? Oh, because I can't focus. Another one because said, because I'm hyper. And another one said, um, to, to, fix, to fix me. And I was like, oh, my God. Please know these kids are looking for an external source or saying this other thing is going to help them. And, and this was 50% of my daughter's lunchroom table. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, no, I, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm excited because one of the people who blurred this book is Ned Hallowell, who wrote, who wrote Driven to Distraction. So he's an ADD expert and he authorized the notion of unfocus because I think he recognized that, that ADD was not just about being inattentive. It actually was about being obsessed with attention and not being able to let go. So like you, I think ADD is really overdiagnosed. And I think that there are lots of internal resources we can turn to and very simple things. You know, uh, this guy, John Sepp, has actually done research, calling him Guy, I and mean, he's a great researcher, uh, has done research showing that rough and tumble play is actually something that improves attention. And, you know, yet we tend to sterilize all of the stuff out. We're like, you know, stay focused, do this one thing. And we create a society where we're not tapping into the greatest elements of who we are. And I always say to people, my biggest sort of social motivation right now that I see in this is that linear thinking is going to become commoditized. Like you're not going to be better than a machine at thinking linearly. And if you're, you know, people have already said, if you're an accountant, the job is done. If you're a diagnostician only, the job is done. Machine learning is going to take over all the literal thinking. We need to become masters of our unfocused circuits. We need to become people who express, who take this, whatever we're calling attention deficit, and, and lead it back into our own cognitive rhythm. So we can take advantage of the fact, because maybe there's a bunch of people who have hyper-focus, and there's a bunch of people who have attention deficit, and maybe they can meet in the middle by learning how to focus on some things, and let go of other things. Mm. And so I think we're on the same page about this, 
that there are resources we can turn to outside of medication that can really help reorient us toward ourselves. And those people with ADD can actually take advantage of a lot of the things that I'm talking about in this book in order to get to their goals. So give us an example of a client you worked with. So, so many clients have been this way, really. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, the, so, so I'm gonna say this just because it occurred to me and then I'll tell you about the client. So the, one of the first example I use in the book is Carrie Banks Mullis, who discovered polymerase chain reaction, sort of a way of sequencing DNA. Mm -hmm. And he, everybody said, oh my God, this guy is so not, or he's not following any sequential thing. He's not living his life a certain way. He's not, like, they, he wasn't obsessional. And he got the Nobel Prize in chemistry for discovering this because he was driving with his girlfriend, dozing in the front seat one of the days. And he actually suddenly had this idea of, of these images, of these lurid pink images rolling around in front of him, was drinking some wine, stopped off by the, you know, by, by the wayside, sort of came out, started sketching some stuff, went back home, suddenly figured out that he had discovered something and everyone had said, you know, you would expect that a guy who got the Nobel Prize in chemistry would have been super focused. No, he did a PhD in chemistry. Then he left for a couple of years. Then he went back and he worked in a bakery for two years. And then he came back and, and he said, you know, I just didn't want to follow this, line, this linear process. I wanted to just explore myself in this way. Like he, I think he was one of those people who realized that logic is misleading because retrospectively, the people who tell you how to be successful can only remember their conscious steps. They don't remember their unconscious steps. So they make it sound, even Steve Jobs said, you can only join the dots looking backwards. You can't join them looking forward. And so I would say that from people that I've worked with, I've worked with lots of entrepreneurs who have just, they've not been to formal schooling. They've, they've not had the kind of things that have held us captive, for example, where we feel like we have to adhere to a certain system of thinking. And they've done a bunch of different things in completely different areas. Most people in academia would say, man, this person is so unfocused. But you know, they've invented devices, they've invented sort of new ways of, of, of photography, new digital, I mean, all kinds of different things, just because they didn't feel like they had to follow somebody else's formula in living a life. And really that's what this book is about. It's about reminding you that the industrial revolution to a certain extent made us a little bit more machine-like. Mm -hmm. And we became obsessed with this notion of focus. And there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, we all need to focus from time to time. But doing focus alone is a sure way to actually exhaust your brain. And really what I want people to recognize is that oftentimes the answers that we're looking for in life are within us, just like the people that I'm talking about. I like that. It kind of leads me into the concept of rediscovering our eye, right? It's yeah. rediscovering our eye and, and how that translates into um, our identity in the world. Well, discovery, I think, is so underrated in our world. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, so there's a one laptop for all project that they did where they dropped laptops in rural Ethiopia. And they were like, since these kids had never, they didn't even know what technology was. They were like, what would they do with them? And they were like, would they sit on them? Would they try to eat it? Would they prod at it? Well, within a couple of hours, they learned how to turn on the on and off button. A few hours after that, they learned how to sing songs and they learned ABCs. And then within a week, they had hacked Android. This is no school. They didn't even know what technology wow. was, but they were free to discover. 
you know, I ran a coaching class once and I actually, I, I didn't, you know, invented this new technology. And I said, I'm going to give you a half hour just to try to figure out how this works. Not one person, they were like, I don't know how this works because they feel like there has to be a formula. So if, if rural kids in Ethiopia can learn how to hack Android because they're curious, imagine how, what we are missing by restraining our own curiosity. Mm. And that also leads us to our limitations with age belief. Like some people, I hear, I hear it from clients so often, I'm too old for that, or I'm too old to learn a new language, or I'm too old to run a marathon, I'm too old. And like that is that exactly kind of an extreme form of that limited thinking where you've boxed yourself in. Because we know that our brain is neuroplastic till we die, right, Srini? I mean, even... Yeah. In severe cases, there's reversal of progressive dementia. And we can see the neuroplasticity um, response and improvements no matter how old we are. Absolutely. I mean, I, in fact, age is one of the things I bring up in the book. And I actually talked about the fact that it's sort of weird when you think about it, right? I mean, it, what is this like? It's about rotation of the earth around the sun. And like, how, what is this gonna do with anything? And, you know, at first we tried to reverse, we tried to challenge this notion by cosmetically changing mm -hmm. things like Botox, right? But now studies are showing that if you have an expectation that older people will walk more slowly, you will walk more slowly. And if you have an expectation that that does not exist, you will unconsciously be able to walk much faster. So we basically do ourselves in by attaching all these negative stereotypes to age. Because, and we change our brains negatively to be in accordance with some stereotype that we're holding. And more recently, there've even been studies that show that aging is related to these caps that you have on chromosomes. And that, and that the aging itself, that these, these caps, the telomeres, telomeres. Can, be, can be changed if you, if you use mindfulness meditation. So you can change your aging process. And I think it's this kind of, there's actually lots of societies, there's the Terracet movement that's looking into what immortality is. And they believe that it will be a fusion of technology, which will basically just reprogram cells that are dying, you know, and, and, and being human. And I, one of the things I do on the side is biotechnology because I love it so much. And, you know, when I look at these mechanisms, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like, this drug is going into a cell it's inhibiting an enzyme. As a result, the cancer metabolite, the oncometabolite is not being formed. And then the normal stem cells are starting to regenerate. And what's interesting about that, and I always say this, if I can tell you to lift up your right hand, and that's possible, like you can go, if I say lift your right hand, you can do that. Why in theory, I'm not saying this can be done, but why in theory can you not talk to your red blood cells? Why in theory, can you not talk to, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there have actually been studies uh, on, on warts that, and they're not consistent, but there's a bunch of studies that show that you can cause wart regression just by believing that, that they're going to go. And the idea being that that belief can actually constrict the blood vessels that feed, that feed the wart when you take your mind to that place. Now, wow. this stuff is not stuff that I say we know definitively. I think it needs to be explored more. But I do think there are all, they are all signals that we may be missing our greatest potential by not believing and exploring. My feeling about believing is don't just take it for granted. You know, every, every great thing 
started with a belief. You know, I, with the work you do, you know, I think your work is transformative because you're basically saying you don't have to believe in age. You know, you don't have to think about sex as something that goes away when you get older. You don't have to feel like your body is disappearing. You don't have to feel like you can't be healthy because it's possible to actually feel better. Everything that you're doing is based on that. And then you develop products that are helping people get to those places. You know, I think none of that would, would happen if you didn't believe upfront that you had to explore what worked to get people to their goal. Yeah, and I think this, like you said, it starts with, for me, faith, right? Faith or belief, that's key. And also it brings back to like the biblical principles, like within us, we have the ability to do miracles. So, I mean, that's, that's not some of us, that's all of us. So exploring, discovering, or rediscovering that ability that was innate to us that may have gotten suppressed over the years, rediscovering that and allowing that to blossom is, that's super exciting. So. Yeah. I mean, I actually think that, that when people read things like the Bible, right, they, they read it like it's a story, like it's about all these other people who are magical. But the reminder is really that that faith is about discovering the miraculous things that exist in life. And I think if you're somebody who's skeptical and you're like, oh, you know, why are these people going off on this tangent? Look like the way scientists see it. Every experiment of a scientist starts with belief. Then they test it. And then they draw a conclusion. Scientific but if method. If you don't test something, you're never going to know. And if you don't believe, you're never going to do the experiment. So I feel like belief is necessary to do the experiment so you can explore what the findings are. Mm, I love that. All right. So we're going to dig into tinker, do, dabble, doodle, try. Tinker. That's right. So for everyone, just right now, go to Dr. Srini's website. So D-R-S-R-I-N-I-P-I-L-L-A-Y, drsrinipillay.com. It's a wealth of resource. Definitely get on his email list. There are a few people that I regard to the high level that I regard Dr. Srini to. And let me tell you, you know, I mean, this has been enticing and, and just a great session like I feel like it's been a session but um <laughs> we needed our martinis Srini to like really connect yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so which I see in the you know my eye visualizes martini glasses in the background on your wall what is that image on the back of your wall <laughs> I did it sort of as, as a happy joke it's actually an elephant I can show you this you have an elephant in the room and then that <laughs> And that graffiti across the wall is actually love. And so now I see it on the side up there are some gold leaf Mick Jaggers because I felt like they also needed to be in the room. So appropriate. It definitely fits. <laughs> I like that. The elephant in the room. That is so good. One thing just, I'm going to let you go two minutes. It's just, you know, tying this in anything since we've last talked about PTSD and encapsulating those memories, doing the house cleaning, really allowing this um, daydreaming, what did you call it? Yeah, uh, PCD, positive constructive daydreaming. Right? PCD, positive constructive daydreaming, to do that house cleaning for those of us that suffer with PTSD. Yeah, I think that a lot of, a lot of the books sort of, it doesn't directly address PTSD, but it does address the anxiety that sometimes, sometimes stops us in our tracks. And I think with PTSD, there is a significant anxiety and we try to focus on stuff, but 
I think we now know beyond any doubt that it's not the debriefing and telling yourself the story over and over again that helps. It's really focusing on the resilience and reframing and refocusing. And you'll see this in the book. You know, I think for those, for those people who are suffering from PTSD, start with possibility thinking, which is, is it possible to have a better life? Is there anyone in the world with PTSD who's had a better life? And there's been at least one person. And if that's the case, what can I learn from them? And how can I then let go of the past that has been creating, that has been horrible, but also has been my story, right? And how can I allow myself to recreate my life story and move on? And I think that's the challenging piece. And in the book, what you'll find is some elements about what goes on when you want to make that change, how you can actually help yourself make that change. Start with possibility thinking. Once you get stuck at that wall, there's a thing that you can do called spreading of alternatives, which is basically helping your brain make the change to having a, a more fulfilling life. And I think the more you do PCD and these unfocused techniques, the more you will find that important puzzle pieces that have been missing will come to the fore and the story will feel told in a way that will allow you to leave it behind. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well said. All right, listeners, drsrinipillay.com and his book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. And then again, just getting on his email list as well. Please share this message. I know you're going to rewind right now and start listening again, but share this message and share this book and and Dr. Srini's work. It's cutting edge. And let me tell you that I know that his work has helped so many people out, you know, outside of my small little circle that I referred, and then also just the tremendous help that he's given me. So uh, give us your feedback, share this message, comment below, and we look forward to seeing y'all again. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Srini. Thank you very much.